Kids, I hope you uh, enjoyed Zip this morning. And uh, read Daniel 6. And, you know, if you have friends, or as kids' term would say, frenemies, who, uh, who, don't, um, who treat you differently because uh, you believe in God, then talk to your parents about how you can handle that uh, appropriately, right? Well, I'm uh, excited to talk to you this morning. I'm bringing my... Uh... There we go. Great. Uh, and just want to talk to you on the topic this morning, is God enough? Um, is God enough? You know, there's a, a cycle we read about in Israel's history uh, that happens often that we also see and understand uh, today, not only in the world around us, but in our personal lives as well. And there's this cycle of experiencing a hardship or oppression. And then there's this crying out to God. And then there's uh, God coming and empowering and moving and, and the, the person or the people group rising up in God's strength and, and then having victory and experiencing this period of time of victory and favor in God and just peace or freedom or all of these kinds of pieces, and then there's this drifting from God that ends up leading back to a time of hardship or oppression or uh, difficulty. And so we see this cycle continually in Scripture. Uh, We see it clearly in the story of Joseph, right? Israel was enslaved uh, by Egypt. Uh, They cried out to God. Um, God sent Moses, and through Moses and Aaron, uh, God used them to deliver God's people. And God did dramatic miracles and signs and wonders. And the, and the people of God were uh, rescued from uh, Egypt. And then uh, through Joshua, they get to the edge of the promised land and they fight with God's strength and power. They, they fight and they obtain the promises that God had for them. Right, And they enter in uh, to their promised land, and they're riding high, and this is a, an excellent period of time. And then Joshua passes away. And Judges chapter 2, verse 10, tells us uh, the next step of, the, of, the, of Israel. It says, after that, the, meaning after Joshua passed away, uh, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And so this one generation has this amazing experience with God. They fight with God. They, have, they earn this, this place, this, uh, this statute. And then the next generation grows up and, and doesn't know. And what we see is that actually then led again to hardship and oppression as the neighboring countries began to invade Israel and uh, mistreat them. We also see this story clearly in um, the story of the beginning of Israel around their kingship and their kings. And that's really where I want to hang out today uh, and read some scriptures from 1 Kings and, and just look at that and say, what does this mean for us today? Well, in First and Second Samuel, we're not going to turn there because it's basically over the entire two books of the Bible, um, Israel works to become a nation. Uh, they've, uh, they've experienced the hardship that I talked about after the falling away from God and uh, after Joshua uh, through different judges. And uh, they have this ebb and flow of judges following them. Samson, who's mentioned in the video, is in that period of time. And 
through under the prophet Samuel, Saul's established as their first king, and there's some hardship there. And then there, King David comes in, and uh, he kind of uh, pursues en- the enemies of Israel. The, he, they they uh, purchase their freedom, so to speak, by winning and going to war, and God moves on their behalf. And they become, under David, Israel becomes the greatest in the world. And, and really for the country of Israel, the greatest ever in history was at that period of time as far as uh, the, the um, David's being famous and the amount of land they owned and all those kinds of things. And so he defeats their enemies. And then when he dies, after 40 years of being king, and there's relative, there's relative peace and prosperity in the nation, his son Solomon comes uh, to power and reigns. And Solomon reigns for 40 years, um, but he builds the temple that David wanted to build for God. And I want to read you those scriptures. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38 is where we're going to start in, in 1 Kings And it says this, the foundation of the temple of the Lord was laid in the fourth year in the month of Ziv. When we say fourth year, it wasn't like 4 BC. It was the fourth year of King Solomon's reign. That's how they gauged years at that point. It was the the fourth year of King Solomon's reign. Verse 38, in the 11th year, in the month of Bull, the eighth month, the temple was finished in all its details according to its specifications. He had, built, he had spent seven years building it. So Solomon took seven years to build the temple, and in the 11th year of his reign, he reigned 40, it was finished, okay? And you can go through and you can read uh, around um, uh, 1 Kings chapter 5 and 6, the, the furnishings of the temple, the materials he used, the amount of materials used, I'm going to sum it all up and say this. It was the most magnificent building in the world at that time. We're talking, uh, Jeremiah and I were talking about this at one point. They, Solomon had the huge stones of the temple hewn, meaning cut to size, at the quarry. Because he required that no iron tool be used on the job site. So these craftsmen had to cut the stones at the quarry to the exact size the builders were going to use when they, when they started stacking them. Now, we're not talking stones like, you know, paving stones or, or brick-sized stones or even cinder block-sized stones. We're talking stones the size of cars. So they had to be perfectly cut so they fit in building the temple. He used uh, the most popular cedar he, and then he overlaid the entire Holy of Holies with gold. Real gold. Not fake gold, not gold leaf, not like gold. The entire inside was covered in gold. And then they talk about the bronze pillars, and he made uh, a, a bronze basin for, for, uh, for the washing of and the, and the holding the water that was the size of your bedroom. Well, depends on your bedroom. It was about 12 by 12 area. The wall's three inches thick, seven and a half feet deep. That's like a swimming pool made of bronze. So just the elaborate, the enormity of this, and in today's monetary value, it, was, it would be in the hundreds of billions of dollars spent on this building. And then we read in 1 Kings 
chapter 8, King Solomon dedicates the temple to the Lord. And there's this, uh, there's prayer, uh, there's sacrifice of sheep, there's uh, uh, Solomon encouraging the people. I mean, when you look in scripture, he killed, he sacrificed 142,000 animals to the Lord that day. That's a lot of animals. I mean, this, just it blows your mind. But let, I want to read to you the culmination of this. And as Solomon is encouraging the people on that day of dedication, he says this. Uh, he's praying to the Lord. And he says, And may these words of mine, which I have prayed before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, that he may uphold the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel according to each day's needs. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is no other. So he's saying, hey, Lord, would you do what it takes every single day for the entire world to know that there is no one there. You are it. You alone are God. And may uh, and may your hearts be fully committed, he's talking to the people now, may your hearts be fully committed to the Lord our God to live by his decrees and obey his commandments as at this time. Then the king and all Israel with him offered sacrifices before the Lord. And that's when they sacrificed all those animals. So Solomon stands up and it's the pinnacle of Israel's uh, spiritual and uh, uh, their community as a whole. I mean, they were, they were operating at the peak of, of uh, every nation. Every nation looked. I mean, they talk about the Queen of Sheba who traveled with vast amounts of gold and spices just to see and hear from Solomon. So there's this, the most beautiful, ornate building in the world. Solomon stands and dedicates and the glory of God falls in the place in a thick cloud so everybody could see, oh my gosh, look at God move. Dramatic, dramatic ways. God visits Solomon and speaks to him personally, which in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. This didn't happen often in people's lives, if ever for some. It was a special thing when God himself spoke with you. I mean, today we have the Holy Spirit who lives in us, right? We, at any time, we can go, go and bow our heart to him and, and pray, and he'll speak to us. But that wasn't the case then. So you just have this incredible, amazing period of time. That was in his 11th year of his reign. He reigned 29 more years. And then we get to the end of the 29 years and Solomon passes away and goes to be uh, with his forefathers in heaven. Um, And uh, if you read the whole story, which I don't have necessarily time for us to do, the kingdom splits because Rehoboam... um, you know, he makes this proclamation that, nope, I'm going to be a more, more of a king than my dad. You know, he wants to prove himself. Like, no, my, you're going to work harder for me. I'm going to be, you know, he just does what young men freshly in power do. They, they make, they talk stupid, right? And they don't know what they're doing or saying. He ignores the advice of the older counselors that counseled his father. And instead he listens to the younger ones and the kingdom's divided And uh, Jeroboam becomes king of Israel. Rehoboam becomes king of Judah. And it's divided. But let's, I want to read to you each of these kings. 
Jeroboam, who took the majority of the kingdom from Rehoboam, uh, says this in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 26. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. Well, he was afraid that the kingdom was going to go back to Rehoboam because the people had to travel to Jerusalem to worship God. And Jerusalem was in the territory that Rehoboam was king over. So all the people who were, Rehoboam was their king, who defected and came to him, now every year had to go back to Jerusalem to sacrifice and worship God. And, and so that's where, where Jeroboam's like, these people, if they keep going back and forth, eventually their hearts are going to go back to their previous king. He says, if these people go up to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other he set up in Dan. And if you looked at a map of the portion of Israel he was over, Bethel is in the southern part, close to the border, and Dan is in the most northern part. So he, was, he had the two calves covered for the country. So they didn't have to go anywhere. Just, you, can, you don't have to travel far to go to church, is what he was saying. Hey, 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 you could, you could come right here. You don't have to travel down the road too far. You don't have to go drive in that half hour, hour to go to church one way. I mean, right to, 10 minutes down the road, it's easy. Right? That was his... But in his, in his mindset, he's doing it because he's afraid he's going to lose them. But he appeals to them based on their desire for convenience. Uh, and probably the awkwardness of going back to a kingdom to worship that you, you defected from, right? There's probably some of that as well. So that's Jerob- Jeroboam. In 1 Kings 14, verse 21 through 24, um, it's a, just a snapshot of Rehoboam. I encourage you to read the entire story. Verse 21 says this, Rehoboam, son of Solomon, was king in Judah. He was 41 years old when he became king, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem the city the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel in which to put his name. His mother's name was Nehemiah. She was an Ammonite. Judah did evil in the eyes of the Lord by the sins they committed. They stirred up his jealous anger more than those who were before them had done. They also set up themselves high places, sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. There were even male shrine prostitutes in the land. The people engaged in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. To me, this is, I read this, and this was like shocking news. Both kingdoms on Solomon's death instituted idol worship. Left God and begin to worship idols. One, one generation later. I mean, 29 years. It was his 11th year. He, he, 
Solomon offered the temple, sacrificed it. All of Israel was there, saw God descend in amazing ways. They celebrated God, this huge amount of money and, and sacrifice. They feasted for eight days. I mean, it was just this amazing peace. And 29 years later, they all start worshiping idols. What in the world? How does that happen? I mean, think about it. Rehoboam, it says he was 41 years old when he became king. And if Solomon reigned for 40 years, that means Rehoboam was a year old when his dad became king. Which also means he was 12 years old when the temple was dedicated. Old enough to see the power and glory of God fall in a magnificent way. Right? I remember lots of stuff from when I was 12. Not everything, but I remember a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm pretty much, those are formative years, like... You're, you're becoming who you are at 12 years old. So Rehoboam experienced this. He was part of it. What happened? What happened? And, and second to question is this, of, okay, one man's heart can change over 29 years, but what about the people? An entire nation of people. We're not talking about like a church group like went off and started being weirdo. We're talking about millions of people. An entire nation just starts worshiping. Yeah, I was just, yeah. I mean, how can, how in the world can a, can a, can a guy who becomes king say, uh, hey, guys, this is actually your God? I mean, that, that would be like me saying, church, this was actually your God. Let's worship this from now on. You guys would be like, you're crazy. We need to get him out of there. Right? And, and maybe if, you, if I had power over you and you were afraid of me, you might be like, Haha, okay. And you might not come against me, but you're not going to bow down and worship this thing because you're like, no, we know the real God. We saw him 29 years ago at the temple. Right? You... 29 years isn't a long time. Every single person in this room is over 29 years old. Well, except one. Sorry, Jeremiah. So, what in the world? How do you deceive an entire nation of people to think that some gold calf is now their God when 29 years before they watched God move in magnificent ways and even gave of their own money and resources to worship him and see these things. Well, we know, we know this much, that it didn't begin at Rehoboam or Jeroboam. When we look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 4 through 7, we read this. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon began to follow 
other gods. And I think it's interesting to note here that we read earlier that Rehoboam's mother was an Ammonite. And here we see that he began, he built a shrine, uh, a high place for the god of Molech, the god of the Ammonites. So certainly there was probably some influence there. And an even uh, bigger note that I'm not really diving into today is this, well not bigger, but just an interesting note, is that uh, Rehoboam was one year old when his dad became king, which meant Solomon was already messing around with Ammonite women before he became king. Right? So there was something in his heart. And Rehoboam is, is the first king uh, to, to be born whose mother was not an Israelite as well. So it's interesting to, to me that, that Solomon was messing around already with non-Israelite women, which was against their customs. You married into your, which is why Samson was, when Samson was going after Delilah, his family was horrified because like, the, we're supposed to marry within Israel. What are you doing? So those are some interesting pieces in this story. But to me, it says, well, what happened to Solomon? I mean, in his 11th year of reign, he has this, the peak of worship for God is established. The very pinnacle, the temple, the gold, the sacrifices, the the challenging the people. I mean, he challenged them, like, make sure that you let the world know he's the only God. Ah, Yeah, Solomon. Yeah, he's the only God. Yeah. Solomon starts worshiping other gods. And this one, I, it just, it floors me to figure out and to look at and to read this story that Solomon, who's leading them so passionately, whose dad fought and uh, achieved so much and where he took up that mantle and he prayed for wisdom and God gave it to him and, and not only because he didn't ask for wisdom, God gave him everything else, prestige, uh, he gave him riches. He gave him peace from his enemies. He gave him all of these things in addition. And then he showed himself to him and he said to him, listen, if you will follow me like David did, your dynasty will be forever. But if you don't, here's a warning. And 29 years later, you see, you see this in the passing down to Rehoboam when, when David uh, when David passed the kingdom down to Solomon, we see, this, we see this ceremony that David puts the crown on Solomon. He imparts into his life. He speaks to him. He, he says, listen, this is what, how you should lead. This is what you should do. And he's, he's investing into David and he's leading. David's leading him in the ways that David does. When you see Solomon die and Rehoboam come, there's none of that conversation. He doesn't impart anything to him, at least as Scripture records. It's just Solomon dies, Rehoboam succeeds him. Where before, David was like, hey, hey, come here, listen. You remember so-and-so? Deal with them this way. Remember the so-and-so? Here, hey, I've amassed all this product for you to build a temple with. Here are the plans. Like, he's passing it off in the right way. And Solomon doesn't. And so as I considered this, I'm like, what, what in the world? What happened to Solomon? When you read from this point on, 
Not much is said about Solomon in Kings. You, it, it records that his heart was turned by, by foreign wives. And you see a few other uh, things that he did, but it's very silent. And so what was, what was Solomon doing for those 29 years? Well, we can, we can know what Solomon was doing for 29 years. Because Solomon also wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. He wrote the book of most of Proverbs. He wrote the Song of Solomon or Solomon's book. So he wrote other things that give us some insight into what Solomon was doing. And I want to read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 with you. This is Solomon speaking. I said to myself, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. He's testing himself. But this also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Let me pause here. Just a little teaching moment has nothing to do with where we're going today. So I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Because Solomon had slaves does not mean the Bible is advocating that slavery is okay. Okay? Don't, don't have that misnomer. Don't let people point to you and say, well, the Bible has slaves in it. I mean, Solomon, one of the greatest kings, had slaves. I mean, so the Bible must be a... Pro- it's not. These are cultural things. Okay? Slavery 3,000 years ago is different than slavery today. Some common things. We don't understand the culture. Culturally, it was okay to have slaves. Just like that, at culturally, it was okay to have multiple wives. It's not okay to have multiple wives now, is it? It's not okay to have slaves now, is it either? And so, uh, God does not condone slavery just because Solomon had slaves. I just need to point that out to you. No more than God has condoned you having more than one spouse. But clearly, culturally, then they were like, hey, this is God's blessing. We have lots of wives. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women at his disposal anytime he wants. The guy had a problem. Clearly. Right? So just because Solomon had that doesn't mean God is, it's permissible. Okay? Let's move on. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. What is he saying? I was the richest man around. Because that's how you, you guided or you judged wealth. By the amount of flocks and the size of your family, uh, your heirloom, those kinds of things. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. 
Here's what I'm getting to, 10. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Now, he's not saying he refused to take pleasure in things. What he's saying is, anything my heart pleasured, I, I didn't, I didn't uh, abstain from it. I did whatever my heart wanted to do. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for my toil. And we read this through the lens of, what's the reward for our toil? Well, it's, it's the pleasure we get from our toil, right? And that's not a wrong thing to read into it. But here's the question. What was Solomon doing during the 29 years after the temple was completed? He was denying himself no pleasure. Anything he wanted, he had. He was exploring life. Everything he had at his disposal, I'm going to go after it. I'm going to build huge cities. I'm going to experience as many different kinds of women as possible. I'm going to dive into music. I'm going to write books. I'm going to do anything my heart sets out to desire because I want to just see and explore and experience. And after all, I got the pocketbook to do it. Slowly, Solomon allows God to slip from being the priority in his life. And this creates blind spots. This creates blind spots. When we allow God to slip from being the priority in our life, and I don't mean, I don't mean being like, you can only do God things. Like, you can't go build a city. You can't go plant a garden because, oh, only God. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that those things are bad or evil and we shouldn't be taking part of it. It's like, no, but God still needs to be at the top. And what happens is when we pursue other things, whether they're good or neutral, right, and they captivate us, and we give our whole heart to follow those things. All of a sudden, um, God has been marginalized in our life. He's still with you. I still have God. I still got God. God and me, we are good. I had this mountaintop experience with God. You see, I was, we have the testimony. I was down in my luck. Oh, I was addicted. Oh, that was in bondage to sin. And I cried out to God and he healed me and he raised me up and he set me and I'm healed and praise God. And now I go to church every Sunday and I sit in the pew and I read my Bible occasionally and now I'm bored. I got God in my heart now. I've won the victory. It's time to move on and explore some other endeavors in life. And we don't maybe ex- abandon God. We still, we still do our thing. We show up at church on Sunday. We still occasionally crack the Bible. We, we volunteer every once in a while to, to say, see, I'm giving back to my community, but God has not captivated your heart anymore. He's not the priority. He's no longer enough for you. Because you need God and something else for life to be fulfilling. It's the nature of the human heart. We all wrestle with it. 
And you know it's true because for me, the first, my first house was like this 900 square foot, I bought a house on Cape Cod, oh my goodness. I didn't think that was even going to be possible. And it wasn't long before, oh, this house is too small. I need a little something a little bigger. Right? Oh, I guess I'll just do an addition in the basement. I'll build out like this. Oh, yay, look at Sue. Oh, this house is, I don't have a garage. I need a garage. Oh, my goodness, I need a garage bad. I need a car. You know what? There's a lot of golf sites on on the Cape. I need to start learning to play golf because that's what... That's what successful people do. They play golf. Oh, my friends are fishing. I need fishing gear. Like, all of a sudden, my, you're, you're, you're serving God, but you're, you're looking for everything else now, something else to captivate, something else that's bigger, something else to entertain, something else to excite me because this walking with God has reached its, its pinnacle and now it's just not enough for me anymore. And this is the danger when we, when, and this was what happened with Solomon as he gave himself to these other things like this, giving his heart to build big cities and do things nobody had ever done before. Nobody had ever had as much money as Solomon. Nobody had ever had as many wives as Solomon. Nobody built buildings like Solomon. And slowly, Solomon was wandering from God and didn't know it. And that's what I mean by blind spots. You see, because what happens when you set your heart and your affections towards something else? And you're pursuing that. You make excuses of why you need to pursue that. You rationalize. And anything that's contrary to that thought process, you reject or you fight. Even if it's leading you nowhere good. Because your mind has made up that you need this. That this is acceptable. That this is okay. That I deserve this. I've worked hard all my life. I got a good paycheck in my wallet. I can afford this now. This is God's blessings. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. You say, I haven't left God. I'm still in church. I read my Bible. I go to a special service when, you know, we have guest speakers. I I put some money in the plate. See me? I'm still in God. And you're right. I'm not saying that you're not saved. What I'm saying is, is that now your heart is no longer captivated by God, something else has it. And when that happens, blind spots come in and you slowly drift from God and don't even know it. Don't even know it because something else. What are the things in our society? I don't even know where I am in my notes anymore. Um, Things in society that I see in my own life and as a pastor. The biggest one that I see pastorally is a desire for companionship. Somebody's life is broken. And I know there's some single people here and watching. The life is broken. Maybe you went through a divorce. Maybe you had, uh, you know, some abuse in your life and, 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 and there's some loneliness and you don't have that, 
that companion that your heart cries out for that is okay, that God wants you to have a companion. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. But you, you give your life to God and you dig in and, and God's healing you and, and you reach a certain level and all of a sudden somebody who's, you know, halfway fits the bill enters your life. And you become captivated by them. Oh, oh, you know, they can do no wrong. They're Mr. Wonderful. They're Mrs. Beautiful. Oh, I, oh. When, when I'm around them, it must be true love and God's blessing and blah, blah. Oh. I've lost track of the number of people, single people, who have come into this church and found healing from God, met somebody who doesn't serve God, and guess what? They're no longer here. Because God was not enough. God was not enough. And so, is, is the desire for companion an evil thing? Is it a bad thing? God doesn't want... No, God wants that. But guess what? God wants that subject under him. So God's my priority. And my relationship with God is priority. My worship of God is priority. And the other things need to fall in line underneath. But what happens when this desire overrides... We get a blind spot that realizes we're drifting from God. And the next thing you know, we find ourselves on a beach on a Sunday morning and we don't have any Christian friends in our life and we're far from God and we're, we're listening to uh, ungodly things and drinking things we shouldn't and all these kinds of things. And in our mind, we justify it like, oh, God's grace is sufficient for me. I don't need to worship God in a building. Like, all of these kinds of phrases come out of our mouth because it's a blind spot. I see it with success, the desire for wealth or material things. God, God heals somebody, promotes somebody, they're doing awesome things, and all of a sudden, you know, this, this desire for other things and this opportunity comes up that, oh, that affords me an opportunity now to have the things my heart has always desired, whether that be house or vacations or cars or whatever it is. And so then we sacrifice we run hard after this because it's going to provide the other things in my heart and, and God drifts away. The pursuing of intellect. I got to be smarter than that person. I got to this. I got to understand. I got to wrap my head around. I got to right, right, just and the, and the drive to learn and to, and to grow our mind, God becomes second or third or fourth or fifth. The next thing you know, you're standing up on a stage in front of thousands of people saying, guess what, I no longer believe Jesus anymore. Because my learning has taken me somewhere because God was no longer a priority. The learning was the priority. And then we sacrifice and we compromise the things of God for the things that are on the top of the list to keep it at the top of the list. This was Solomon's issue. He applied his heart to anything he wanted and guess what? Nowhere in that list was God. Built the temple. I'm on to more other things. This can happen to nations. It can happen to individuals. And today I'm just talking to you on an individual level. What should our response to this be? How do we keep this cycle perpetuating in our life? I, 
I am very prone to it myself. By God's grace and mercy, he frustrates my plans. <laughs> Thanks for that amen, Sean. No. <laughs> but it is his grace and mercy. My mind, my heart starts being affected. I start having affections for no one other than my wife. Let's get that clear. But when we, our heart has affections for things, paths to take or things to obtain or whatever, things that we pursue that in and of themselves maybe aren't wrong, but all of a sudden now we set our heart to pursuing those things. And then all of a sudden the things that I, that God, I once was excited for God to do now, longer, now are mundane. Now suck the energy out of me. It takes effort to do these things instead of being energized to do these things. Clear indication that something else has my heart. And usually what God does for me is he just lets me get so frustrated. My wife's like, I don't even like you right now. You know, I come into the office and Sean's like raising an eyebrow at me like, well, pastor's off today. You know, whatever it is, but just that's God's grace and mercy in my life. Where he frustrates me and so then I say, what what am I doing? And God says, hey, your affections are, are, other things have priority. And I come back to God and guess what? He's amazing. He's like, yep. I know it's human condition. It's part in the human heart. Come on. Let's get back on track. So what can we do? Number one, make God number one in your life or maintain God as number one in your life. It's imperative. Ask yourself, what is dominating my mind, my desires, my emotions, my time, my money? What... What captivates me and dominates these things? What when you have nothing going on in your life, you're sitting back, and where does your mind gravitate and go to, go, goes towards? Now, listen, if it's vacation, it's probably because you need a vacation. Just go on a vacation, right? Like, <laughs> like I'm telling you, I'm going on vacation uh, after next Sunday, and I'm already thinking about vacation so it's a little bit of work for me sometimes to rein in my mind because I'm excited to go on vacation. That's normal. What I mean is the repetitive thing that you constantly default to. Like, oh, if I had a different career, if or you're unhappy with your spouse, or you're, you're, what are you Googling online and looking for, learning on YouTube, or whatever. What's dominating your mind, your desires, your emotions? Is it the desire for companionship that can cause compromise? Is it a desire for wealth? Is it a desire for power? Is it a desire for enjoyment? Is it a desire for intellect? Any of those things that have a greater desire than our desire for God can cause us to compromise, creating blind spots. Maintain God as number one in your life. When you see that no longer, uh, you, if you once had affections for God, and it drove you to read your Bible, and you were excited to come to church, and you were excited to jump in and get involved, and that's gone, that's waning, that's an indicator. That's an indicator that something else has grabbed you. Something else has your affections more than God. Not that you've abandoned him completely, but that should be the, the red uh, alarm, the red flag. And... How do you keep there? Weigh everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. 
weigh everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jim kind of alluded to this this morning when he shared, we are in a, a, a big danger as the church to lose ourselves in a cause. Not that there's anything wrong with the cause, okay? Or even that the cause may be needed or is needed. But when you give yourself fully to it, you have the potential to make the cause greater than Jesus Christ, and now you're in a dangerous position. The, the church needs to guard itself right now. And I don't mean the church as in the institution. I mean the individuals, you, the church, me, the church. And it's just, that's, as a society, where we're at right now, that needs to be guarded Like, hey, I could lose myself in a cause. I could lose myself in the election that's coming up, right? The political swingings and the the banterings of policies and politics and all these kinds of things, right? It's coming up soon, very soon. And you could lose yourself because social media, your personal beliefs, all these kinds of things. Next thing you know, like, I got to get so-and-so elected. I got to send a word. And we backseat God. And we don't process We don't weigh everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. When you weigh everything through the lens of Jesus Christ, well, in this situation, how would Christ respond? You're keeping him as priority. So when you see somebody or you see something that uh, appears to be wrong and you say, "I, I noticed this wrong, how would Jesus respond in this moment? What would Jesus compel me to do in this moment? You're keeping him as priority. There doesn't have to be a conflict between doing the right things and pursuing things that are fine and keeping God as priority. There doesn't have to be a conflict. Weigh everything through the lens of Jesus Christ. The second thing we need to do, take personal responsibility. Nobody likes... I mean, we're in, a, we're, in a, we're in a culture that nobody likes taking responsibility. I'm not going to dive into why that is. Um, but we see this clearly in here. Solomon, could, it could be said of Solomon that he was riding on the experiences of his father. His father went out and fought for the kingdom. His father established the kingdom. His father desired the temple to be built. His father even amassed the materials to build the temple. His father set him up nice. And he just kind of rode in. And so he didn't make it a personal thing. He didn't take personal responsibility for him, for Solomon. And God wants a relationship with you, not you through somebody else. God's restored that. Jesus came so that we could have a personal relationship with God, not so that we didn't have to go through a law, that we didn't have to go through a priest, that we didn't have to go through any of these things. We can directly talk to God, and he wants that. And that's your responsibility to maintain that. That's not mine. It's not a TV preacher's responsibility. It's your responsibility to maintain your relationship with Jesus Christ.
No riding on other people's experiences. You're not going to get to heaven because I love Jesus. Second part, you can't wait for others to get their act together before you do. The fact that Solomon was following other women and following other gods is no excuse for Rehoboam or Jeroboam. They need to take their own responsibility for it. And you, just, you can't wait for, oh, well, they don't get their act together. And guess what? When we went back and we read that uh, about Jeroboam, it started off with saying God was upset with who because they did evil? Judah. The people of Judah. God did, they didn't get a pass because Rehoboam was leading them wrong. They didn't get to go, hey, uh, Rehoboam didn't have his act together, therefore we didn't have our act together. We're waiting for him to get his stuff together, you know, and then we'll be, we'll be an awesome people again. And if we wait for our government to get its act together, if we wait for our political parties to get their act together, if we even wait for the church to get its act together before we do what's right, we're missing the boat. We have to get our act together individually. You can't wait for somebody else. You can't wait for your family to get their act together before you start to do right. You can't wait for your friends or your peers or your boss or to get their act together before you start responding with what's right. You get your act together. You take responsibility and say, it's my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not going to wait for others I'm not going to use other things as an excuse of why I am the way I am. Well, just, there's not a system in place for me to understand or do those things. Well, f- God gave you the Holy Spirit to lead you and to guide you. Let me close with this. There's a, a clear example in this story that if we don't make God enough in our lives, if we don't maintain God as a priority, it doesn't have an effect on just us. It affects the generations after us, for good or for bad. Solomon's drifting affected Rehoboam and Jeroboam and affected the nation. Now, the nation didn't get to point to Solomon and say, it's his fault why we're like this. God said, no, 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 personal accountability. You're responsible for you. And the leader's responsible to do what the leader needs to do, which is why the Bible talks about those who are in leadership and who teach are, are held more accountable than those who aren't teachers. But your choices... You're keeping God priority in your life or not keeping him priority in your life will affect the people around you. Friends, family, children, co-workers. Which is why we need to keep God number one in our life and we need to take personal responsibility for making sure that happens. And if God will stay number one in our lives and personally we take responsibility for that, our outcomes will be different than the outcomes we read about in Scripture. 
because we do see that later. If you read about uh, um, Rehoboam's grandson, Asa, he decides to do what's right by God. And he does it mostly right. Don't be afraid to jump in and go, well, I don't really know everything. I don't know if I'm going to get it right. Just do what you know is right, and the rest, figure it out as you go. The, the issue is the heart and where God is in your life, not whether you actually do it right. And then Asa's son did right by the Lord as well. You see him doing it right, passed on to his son who did it right. Now, I don't know what happened after that. I challenge you today to either maintain God as number one in your life. If, he's, if, if you evaluate your life and you say, you know what, God is number one. I'm, I, love, uh, I love spending time with God, reading my word. I love being around God's people and being part of church. Like, you, for you, God is, God is there. Like, that's fantastic. See this as a warning. Like, hey, everyone's heart, it's in every human heart to make other things a priority. And to drift. If you're sitting here today or you're watching online and you're like, man, Pastor Steve just ripped my heart out today. Like, I used to be excited for God. I used to just wake up in the morning and read my word and listen to Christian music and I couldn't get enough. And, you know, something else has captivated my heart can simply, the word is repent. And I don't mean repent like as in, like, you know, you got to do self-harm or some kind of thing like that. It's just turn from it and say, God, I'm going to make you number one again. You're number one in my life. I'm coming back. And that's where we get the story of the prodigal son, where, where the father just is super excited and runs and meets him, meets him halfway. Anyway, Make God number one in your life. Don't wait for other people to do it for you. Don't wait for someone else to take you by the hand. Uh, don't wait for someone else to get their act together. And like, We are the most resourced uh, generation in history. You have every resource at your fingertips to learn about God. Do it. Take Nike's slogan. I don't care. Just do it. I'm going to do this thing. And if we'll do this together as a, as a body, as believers, man, the, 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 le- the level of um, life that you experience, your enjoyment of life, the effect you'll have on other uh, generations around you and people around you will be um, beyond your understanding. But don't do it for them. You do it for you. And the rest will fall into place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you this morning that you, you are enough for us. You're more than enough. You're everything. And it's the, own, it's the proof of the evil desires within our heart that make us, lead us to think that we need more than you to have a life of fulfillment and joy and peace. Lord, help us to restore you being number one in our lives, you being priority. Lead us by your Holy Spirit to a place where where you are in your proper place again.
where you are on our mind and you are in our emotions and you are part of our time and that other things fall under that. Lord, give us the strength and the energy to take personal responsibility for ourselves, not use other situations or other people as excuses for where we are in our life. Lord, lastly, let us be a community of believers who encourage one another in these things. That we encourage one another to keep God number one. That we encourage each other with responsibility and moving toward you and, and living for you. Lord, we love you. We, pr- we praise you this morning. And Lord, we just ask that you would be number one in our lives. We praise you, worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us online. Uh, we'll catch, catch you next week or somewhere in social media. Have a great day. And guys, thanks for, thanks for showing up today. It's great to see so many faces and a new face in the back. Thanks for joining with us today. It's great to have you today. Um, if you guys need anything, give us a shout. Give us... Uh, Give us a call. Uh, We'll be around. Otherwise, uh, enjoy this wonderful uh, 4th of July week and the weekend coming up. We'll see you next week. future